0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and then watch older movies connected to it by genre, performer, or filmmaker, and then make recommendations or warnings about what we've seen. <laughs> My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a journalist and a film writer on the blog Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca.
1: No, wait. I'm Karsten Knox. Did I do Flaw in <laughs> the Iris. Oh, wait. No, no. I'm Stephen Cook. And uh, I'm an arts writer with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax, and uh, I think I've just given a hint as to what we're talking about
0: today. (laughs) On this episode, we'll take a look at the new Brandon Cronenberg film, Possessor, still in cinemas, and how it relates to uh, overlapping genres, the Possession movie, usually demonic, and the Body Swap movie, usually comedic. We'll split the difference with a grab bag of pictures from horror to science fiction and beyond, beyond genre, Beyond Gender. This is Body Swap Movies on Lens Me Your Ears.
1: Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new and recent films and compares them to films from days gone by and today we're doing films about body swap, identity, theft, uh possession. We're kind of blurring the lines between uh, subjects, but but because there's a lot of blurred lines in our main film which is Possessor or Possessor Uncut, depending on where and how you see it. The latest film from Brandon Cronenberg, who is definitely continuing his run of films that uh, follow in a, a kind of a postmodern extension of his father, David Cronenberg's um, work with a, a look at modern society and and alienation and disaffectation and taking that into whole other realms of discomfort and suspense. And he definitely does that with possessor uncut and i don't want to say too much about the plot of this film uh... because there are different layers and elements that uh... you're probably better not better off not knowing but let's let's do the bare bones of this film we basically have uh, two main female characters to begin with andrea riseborough a fine actor who we've we've seen in a number of things in recent years uh... death of stalin and uh... mandy she's been terrific in in everything i've seen her in anyway as uh... tazia voss um, a woman who has a very very mysterious uh, um, job to do she is uh, she's she works for a mysterious company run by Gerder played by Jennifer Jason Lee who's always a pleasure to see on screen and what she does is she enters the uh, basically the minds of uh, unsuspecting subjects in order to perform high-level assassinations as kind of an extreme form of of industrial espionage and uh most of this film revolves around the case of uh of a assassination she has to carry out on a, a man named john parse he's uh like a high-tech uh high-tech guru who runs a multi-million dollar or billion dollar corporation that specializes in data mining and um she is instructed to take over the psyche of his daughter's boyfriend colin played by christopher abbott and the uh, the daughter is uh, another fine actor, uh, Tuppets Middleton, with the most British name of all time. And we've, <laughs> we've seen her in other things as well. And she's terrific as well, um, as Ava Pars. So, so basically, uh, Tasia takes over the identity of Colin, uh, in order to get close to his uh, his girlfriend's dad and uh, carry out this assassination. But uh, as we've seen in an opening scene, uh, these uh, assignments are taking their toll on Tazia, uh as each, each time she goes into another psyche, uh, she has to bond with that person's personality and identity. And it's uh, slowly and ever so surely chipping away at her own, uh, eroding her own persona and... Uh, she finds it harder and harder to uh, finish the job. Uh, not so much the killing of other people, which she seems to have no problem with, but uh, each job has to end with her, in the other body, taking her own life in order to return back to her own uh, her own brain, her own mind, her own person. And uh, as we as we see from the very get go, this is becoming harder and harder with each. Uh, assignment. Uh, so uh, basically, that's it. It's just, uh, this kind of erasing of identity to perform this horrible, horrible task in the in the not too distant future. Uh, it, in fact, I don't think they go to any great lengths to make it appear that it's that far in the future that this stuff is happening. And uh, and that that that's essentially it. We uh, you know we we feel this dread as she's losing her grip on reality on herself. And uh, also uh, when she lands in a persona that it turns out uh, doesn't want to go quite so willingly or give up uh, give up possession of its own faculties quite so willingly. And uh, and that, of course, leads to our third act, Consequences, which I don't want to talk about uh, too much. But uh, but, uh, you know, Cronenberg has a has a great topic here and uh, and really, I think, explores it pretty fully.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you with this one Stephen for sure. Uh you know possessor is Oh man, I mean I really enjoyed this film. It manages that fine balance between science fiction concepts and grim and gory horror. I, I think it's probably the chilliest amalgam of genres that I've experienced since Maybe Under the Skin, which was a film mm. I really enjoyed from 2014. It has it has both that sort of creeping physical body horror, which, you know, it's hard not to bring into the conversation. Brandon Cronenberg's father, who is, you know, the grand master of this kind of thing, uh, but it, it's also hard. It's it's just hard to ignore, you know, that that influence. But but I gotta say that Brandon's vision, and especially his his sort of cinematic vision, is quite his own. This is his second film. I remember seeing Antiviral, which was was also quite good um, a few years ago. Uh, but uh, but yeah, possessor has, as I say more in common with something like under the skin. It also has that sort of dash of espionage thriller in it for good measure. this uh, this this fact is that Andrew Riseborough's character Tazia, is a great assassin. It's a perfect assassin if she can port into the body of her her hosts, wander around them in them, sort of take them on for a while, and then kill the the target. Uh, and leaving, leaving the body behind. I mean, she's, there's, there's no way she, uh, you know, can get caught. But, uh, but the psychological damage that this work does is really what this is about. She's not a very happy character. Uh, Tasia is married but separated. She's trying to repair her relationship with her ex played by Ross of Sutherland, who is a another son of a Canadian screen icon, um, and her child. But uh, she seems to have to rehearse to seem normal with them. She has to sort of practice to be in herself, to feel normal. And that's an interesting tell, I think. Um, uh, great, as you said, great performances. Christopher Abbott is very good. Tuppets Middleton, who I like quite a lot. And... Um, who was in that film? We talked about a few episodes episodes ago, and I'm totally going to blank on the name of it. The one where she is set in um, in Niagara Falls, where she plays um, she plays this woman coming back to her, and there's a murder mystery. Oh,
1: disappearance at Clifton Hill. Which that's is it. Also, uh, yeah, also highly recommended. I think it's on CBC Gem for free right now. So.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, uh, and and of course the. Uh, David Cronenberg is an actor in that film. So she's definitely been working with Cronenbergs lately, which is kind of awesome. Um, And then, of course, Sean Bean is pretty reliable. Uh, So, yeah, and there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of the sort of, modern tech anxiety going on here. But but I really want to bring attention to Cronenberg's, Brandon Cronenberg's, that is, immersive visual sense. He, he drops us into this sort of dream world and then he locks us in there as the walls and the mirrors start to to fall apart around the characters. This is not a film that dials back its commitment or its its vision the deeper in we go. It's quite the opposite. It, it gets bloodier, and more intense as you go into the film and two characters sort of fight for, for, uh, identity for control. This is a uh, really exciting. It's really immersive. And, uh, I, I might've struggled a little bit to try to figure out what it's about in a broader sense. Like, is it, is it, uh, you know, I mean, other than losing, uh, your identity. I mean, that's, that's a genuine fear and, and I can understand, I mean, it doesn't need to be about anything more than that, but, but, uh, Allegorically speaking, you know I uh, I will look forward to seeing this again so I can better understand maybe some of the uh, some of the storytelling themes um, but uh, yeah I I really love the movie and I would encourage anyone to go check it out.
1: It's uh, it's kind of interesting in that uh, just this week like I think it was Elon Musk was talking about how uh, you know people have to prepare for a future where they're more integrated with technology you know even on like a physical level like you know chips in your head and that kind of thing and we should welcome it and embrace it and i love that possessor uncut is kind of the argument against embracing what he's saying that that you know this there's going to be a cost for that kind of thing and we don't even know what it's going to be and it's probably going to be fairly horrible um and uh I'm, i'm not saying i'm a luddite by any stretch but but um you know it it it, you know charging ahead without questioning the effect it has on the human spirit um is definitely a, a risk and a, a danger and this film certainly expresses that in in, in a big way um and uh, you know throughout the film i'm always kind of wondering you know would there be a better use for this technology than just you know being able to kill people in a more efficient and and uh you know s- sneaky manner uh and uh <laughs> Of course, uh, you know, but that—that's you know where the the brain goes to first. Oh, yeah, yeah, great. You know, couldn't use it for diplomacy or something like that. Nope, assassination. Um, <laughs> and 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 maybe because uh, you know, because because uh played by Jennifer Jason Lee, I mean, she's she's kind of a, a bit of a blank slate. We don't really know what she's thinking, and and uh, you know, I get the feeling that she knows what the cost is. That that maybe uh, uh, you know. Tazia Voss isn't her first agent to kind of go south, So maybe by making them assassins who are ultimately fairly disposable, not only in the psyches they take over, but maybe in their own lives personally, uh, is there the risk that she's prepared to take? And, uh, because you know, how long can you keep using the same assassin over and over again before they're caught or exposed or expose the company? So, um, you know, I suspect she keeps pushing the edge of the envelope of, of what they're doing. Um, further and further with with every assignment and uh yeah it's curious to think about the world that this uh story takes place in and what other horrible things are happening you know in the guise of new technology and new frontiers
0: yeah yeah and it's all set in toronto of course uh which i don't know if it makes a point of saying whether it's toronto or not but as a former torontonian i definitely recognize some of the locations it, it's got to be the creepiest vision of the city since maybe uh uh uh, Denis Villeneuve's enemy. enemy.
1: Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but you know, it's the kind of story. I mean, the the science fiction aspect of it is kind of digital and kind of analog, and I enjoyed that about the sort of machinery that we get to see. Um, I felt like you know, it's it's a little bit a Black Mirror kind of concept. I, I would totally watch a series about this company and about these about an anthology series about body porting assassins navigating a world of false false faces kind of like a like a horror-based mission impossible i'd be i'd be totally all over that if they ever decided they wanted to go there
1: <laughs> yeah it it is interesting to think that the the concept has you know it could have more um legs as it were um that that you know presumably they're going to improve the technology as as the years go ahead and that, uh, that uh, Gerder and, and her, her company, uh, you know, could have a, another life in a different, uh, well, maybe not a sequel, but as you say, like a limited series or something like that, where, uh, where we see further possibilities um, because there's so, you know, there's so many way, ways for these missions to go wrong and but it, it might be too unrelentingly unrel- grim with each assignment <laughs> having to end in a, in a, in a suicide or, you know, death by, yeah. death by cop or whatever. You're, yeah, you know.
0: yeah, it could, I suppose. I mean, I guess, I don't know if you watch uh, Black Mirror, they're pretty unrelentingly great. Yeah, they are, they are. <laughs>
1: I've watched a handful. Um, they, I have to really space them out because it's...
0: Yes, yeah. They they are not uh, what I would call optimistic visions of the future. Um, so, you know, in talking about what we were going to talk about today on our episode, I um, wanted to, to sort of go back to some of the... the antecedents and and influencers for possessor um but you know i think a lot of people will be thinking listening to this well you know uh possession movies are obvious you know the every going back to the exorcist and and everything since then but but this is more of a science fiction concept i think than than a horror like supernatural concept this isn't supernatural i feel like there's a whole separate you know we we will talk about one at least one uh Supernatural possession movie, but uh, but I feel like that's a whole other other barrel of wax, and uh, <laughs> and so you know we're not really going in that direction. We're gonna try to try to go to comedy, and we're gonna try to go to science fiction. Um, and uh, looking back at at some of the the original originators of some of this material, obviously, sort of Jekyll and Hyde is 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 that? Would you say that's the original? Um, uh, it's body switching or or you know body changing, I I'd, sci-fi I sci-fi story. I'd
1: say so. I, I I'd say that you know Robert Louis Stevenson was onto something with uh with that story because I, I feel like it it sort of came out of the whole idea of Freudian psychology um and the idea of conflicting personalities being contained with one within one mind and uh, the struggle. To contain the ego and the id and so on. This is Mike Cole's notes version of Freudian psychology, <laughs> but um, but you know, the, the, there's obviously a strong connection between advances in psychology and the idea of a horror story is not necessarily you know more like the monster within or or the or of being taken over from within kind of thing. And uh, Jekyll and Hyde certainly proved popular enough that there's been dozens and dozens of film versions, you know, from, you know, the original uh, silent versions. There's one with, um, I believe, John Barrymore uh, to the Hollywood versions of the 30s and 40s to the Nutty Professor with uh, Jerry Lewis, you know, each with uh, each offering an actor the opportunity to play two different characters at the same time, which, of course, is probably too delicious to resist for a lot of actors. Um, But but also make us consider the fact that, you know, may, you know, the person that we are you know could become something else and uh and, and that kind of leads to these kind of mind switching movies or or the idea that the brain being taken over by another entity it, it's it's uh it's it's a great idea that has been explored so many different ways uh, over the years. And Jekyll and Hyde Mm -hmm. is, is the most obvious one. And then of course it gets, you know, hammer horror. I think hammer studios made like at least three different versions of the story itself. I think one in each decade of the 50s, 60s and seventies. And then there's been versions that kind of tie it into Jack the Ripper um, just because it happens to happen in Victorian England. I guess that's a natural thing to do. Uh, But uh, it's, it's it's certainly a story that uh, we're going to see more of, You know, we've seen tons of versions of it and we'll be seeing more in the future, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. And then there's the uh, sort of invasion of the body snatchers example of sort of aliens coming down to take over our minds and our bodies. Um, We've spoken about the various remakes of that property on our remake episode. I think it was episode 25. But uh, the original from 1957, Don Siegel's Paranoid Classic, really works as an allegory of fear of conspiracy, fear of communism uh you know and, and any number of things watching it again i watched it again the other night it uh it also kind of works for our paranoid 2020 and our our fear of viruses it's uh it's uh it's a great and a really fun horror sci-fi picture kevin mccarthy plays a town doctor in a small town who keeps having his patients cancel their appointments at one point they're desperate to see him and the next they say everything is fine and then there, he discovers there's an epidemic of mass hysteria. Uh, people start to think that people in their lives are duplicates. Um, and then there is a little bit of a romance between him and his, uh, his basically high school sweetheart. Uh, and, uh, and that roots, roots you in the story to care about the characters. And before long, things just get out of control. Um, yeah, it was, it was fun watching Invasion of the Body Snatchers again. It, uh, it, uh, it really holds up in a way that, I mean, my the, the movie from this sort of series or this um, uh, property that is closest to my heart is the 70s version, uh, which I think is none better than that with Donald Sutherland and uh, Brooke Adams and um, Jeff Goldblum. But uh, the original is is pretty great, and it still works in terms of its allegorical power.
1: Yeah, this, this is a pretty strong film. I mean, it's directed by Don Siegel, who most people will think of as the director of of Dirty Harry and some other Clint Eastwood movies, but that's actually fairly late in his career. He started out as a, a pretty top-notch director of, of uh, largely uh, films noir, and uh, but also some westerns. Uh, a very efficient cinematic storyteller. Uh, there's a film of his called The Lineup. I'm not going to go into detail about it, but it is one of the best film noirs ever. It's so grim, and there's some truly twisted characters in it and it's from like the late 50s uh and it feels like it's pushing a few uh production code boundaries uh here and there but i I really recommend that one because it's just it's discussions of death and drug use and things like that but um but here he's he's kind of applying his film noir technique to a sci-fi story and it works incredibly well plus it's this allegory about people's minds being taken over and and the beauty of it is you you could see it as Either um, a condemnation of the blacklist of, of of people kind of becoming pod people and lining up to accuse um, others of of being communists, um, or you could use it as a parable uh, about the dangers of communism. <laughs> that's and Don Siegel would never commit to what what it actually was. He he would he'd say it is whatever you want it to be, and it could go either way. And that's just the uh, the beauty of the screenplay and also the performances. Um, especially Kevin McCarthy is our, our central character, but the film works astonishingly well. It's very quickly paced and you, you know, you're watching it and you're thinking of people's brains being taken over in your Facebook feed as they post various political things in the in these <laughs> days leading up to the presidential election. It's like, it's like, what happened to my cousin? Why is he posting this nonsense? Um, and, and so uh, I, I feel like there, there could be another, I mean, there've been four, big screen versions of this to date um abel Ferrara did a pretty decent one uh in the early 90s too as i believe and then there's the uh just the invasion with uh, uh daniel craig and nicole kidman i i feel like we, we're probably due for a new one uh in the not too distant future but uh but the original works really really well and even st- there's even a jekyll and hyde reference made sort of early on in the film just to kind of tie it into uh past uh Past stories, But uh, if you've never seen the original with Kevin McCarthy, uh, directed by Don Siegel,
0: uh, I highly recommend it. And it's on uh, Prime, Amazon Prime. That's where I was able to find it. And we continue our look at body swap, body switch uh, possession movies here on Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast. Uh, and we have to talk about a film from 1988 called The Hidden. And this is a science fiction picture. It feels like a spiritual successor to the Terminator, maybe even more so than T2 Judgment Day, just because it's clearly done on a lower budget with some of the uh, excesses of the '80s <laughs> included in its uh, in its um, uh, plot and, uh, and and structure. It's very it's very Terminator influenced, but uh, it's the story of a worm-like alien that possesses people all these people do once possessed is they want to steal they want to drive italian sports cars they want to listen to judas priest and kill people um this alien is a bit of a sensation junkie and that makes for a lot of fun for this movie michael murray plays an la cop who's chasing down a murderer slash bank robber when an fbi guy shows up the wonderfully deadpan kyle mclaughlin driving a porsche 928 uh with this and, and risky business was there ever a more 1980s car than the Porsche 928? It's like the, the thing came with spoons for cocaine. Um, anyway, uh, McLaughlin's FBI agent knows more than he's telling, which upsets Nuri's cop. But after a lot of posturing, they eventually team up to go get the bad guy. Uh, except there's two bad guys with the same MO. And of course we in the audience understand it before. I think most of the people in the film do that. The alien jumps from body to body. Um, I love the scene. There's a scene and I mean, there's a lot of like exterior LA sequences, especially during the car chase chases that there are multiple car chases in this film, but I love the scene in the record store, uh, prominent IRS records, posters and (laughs) REM posters. And then a couple of scenes later, concrete blonde is on the soundtrack. I'm like, Hmm, I wonder if IRS had a deal with the, uh, producers of, of, of the hidden to, uh, you know, forefront their, uh, their lineup. I bet you they did. Um, Anyway, I, I, uh, there's so much to enjoy in The Hidden. Steven, uh, what what did you make of this film?
1: Uh, I remember seeing this in the theater when it came out and I loved it then. It was a lot of fun to revisit. Uh, There's a, a Blu-ray of it. I think it's a Warner archive Blu-ray, but uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I wanted, I want this (laughs) Blu-ray. And uh, (laughs) so I took it by using (laughs) my credit card and and an online retailer um but uh you know and and it was amazing how much of it still stuck out in my mind i haven't really watched it i don't i think i may have watched it once since it first came out but uh i haven't really spent a lot of time with it recently and it was so much fun to revisit because it's it is pretty fast-paced it does get a little meandery towards the end but uh, but uh you know there's some great action stuff in it um you know, the, the trying to figure out what the alien's actual plan is is uh, is is a lot of fun as he hops from body to body, in um, you know, in search of uh, you know, ultimately finding the perfect um, persona to take over, uh, and and maybe go on to other more nefarious things. Uh, but it's 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 kind of <laughs> so haphazard in the way it has to kind of make these connections from one body to the other i kind of love that there's a bit of it's a little bit sloppy in it's <laughs> in it's methodology you know and it's kind of it kind of blew the the budget on like that that opening chase scene which is so well done and then i feel like that's where like 75 percent of the budget went was into staging the the opening scene but um uh yeah it, it's it's a lot of fun that the humor in it is is very pointed and uh and and is full of great one liners and, and uh and Kyle McLaughlin is, is is perfect, of course. Uh playing an FBI agent, I believe before Twin Peaks. I think this is between Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. And uh I'm guessing his performance here as an otherworldly uh, FBI agent um kind of put him in good stead for playing uh Agent Cooper in in uh in Twin Peaks. And Michael Nori is an actor I've always enjoyed. Uh you know, I don't know. What happened to him in his later years, but you know he was on a on a roll and some some fun roles here He's he's just uh, He's handsome, but somehow relatable. I don't know how he pulls it off <laughs> But uh, but he's terrific and, uh, and And Jack shoulder the director. It's interesting. I mean he got this film directly after Making the second nightmare on Elm Street uh, Freddy's revenge film And I guess that got him the job of directing this film and it, Interestingly enough he made a notable movie in 1993 about a guy who wakes up, and you know he keeps living the same day over and over again, <laughs> which sounds kind of familiar. But it actually came out the same year as Groundhog Day, um, called Twelve O One, where his 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 life kind of resets uh, one minute after midnight every day, and and uh, uh, it's actually not a bad low budget kind of thriller. It doesn't quite have the same kind of humor as as the Hidden does, or. or you know maybe the concept isn't quite as high but um but it is interesting that it came out almost exactly at the same time that that groundhog day did so that's something to keep an eye out for but but this is this is definitely a lot more fun than you'd think i feel like it's uh punching above its weight as they say in terms of the script and the, and the character. and and a great supporting cast of kind of just hollywood uh you know standbys like clue Clue Gulliger, who I believe is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if I'm not mistaken, but he's like a Hollywood pro who's around doing TV since the 60s and that kind of thing. So it's kind of fun to see him show up as, as I, one of the yeah. police officers.
0: Yeah, I uh, I didn't really know him, but uh, you mentioned Don Siegel. Recently, uh, just this last week, I happened to watch The, the Killers. He's Don oh, yeah. Siegel's 1964 film with uh, Lee Marvin and and Clue is is Lee Marvin's sort of partner in that film.
1: Yeah, he turns up everywhere.
0: <laughs> um, and then also Danny Trejo is in this movie in the jail cell. He gets one line: "Hey hippie, what kind of dude are you?" Before he gets shot. <laughs> um, yeah, I love the '80s excesses, uh, like the you know the whole scene of the the dude in the white suit doing cocaine with the Ferrari dealer as they seal the deal. <laughs> Um, and the alien learning how to do finger guns on Rodeo Drive uh, there's a lot of a lot of 80s success and uh, speaking of 80s success I'm going to use that as a segue Brilliant. to talk to ask you about Ninja 3 The Domination from 1984 um, I have not seen the first two Ninja movies in the franchise I have not seen Enter the Ninja or The Revenge of the Ninja but I have seen American Ninja some years ago I suspect American Ninja is a separate Separate material to Ninja Three: The Domination. Same
1: director, though I think. But uh, oh, really? Okay. But yeah, Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, and Ninja Three: The Domination. They're a trilogy in name only, I think, because <laughs> um, I don't think there's actually. I think aside from uh, Sho Kosugi, who is a um, who is a fixture in my uh, local video store's martial arts section for years and years and years. Uh, I think he, had, he even had his own line of videotapes called show theater, um, where he would just, I guess he would just intro other people's ninja movies. Uh, but, uh, but in, in this case, uh, this is, a uh, completely unrelated to the first two apart from, uh, um, uh, where, where, uh, Christy Ryder played by uh, Lucinda Dickey, who was also in *Breakin'* and *Breakin' to Electric Boogaloo*, uh, awesome. Uh, and that's kind of where her career ends. Was well, she made two two uh, *Breakin'* movies, a ninja movie, and then um, she kind of vanishes from the screen pretty much. But uh, here she plays Christy Ryder, who's a telephone line woman and a uh, aerobics instructor. Um, you know, there's there's a, a career juggle for you who gets possessed by the spirit of a. Uh, an evil ninja, the black ninja, as he's often called um, in the course of the film, who is uh, he's just uh, assassinated uh, a scientist on a golf course in the most obvious non ninja assassination ever. <laughs> in, in fact, the, the ninjas in this film are so not stealthy or necessarily skilled. I mean, they're, they're pretty good at throwing those stars. That's a, But that's kind of about it. Um, and uh he gets taken out by it takes like dozens of cops to to eventually take out this ninja and then uh, he uh his spirit passes into that of Christy Ryder who then um you know slowly finds herself you know performing these murderous acts and having these strange new skills and and so on and and then um you know and then eventually uh show, show shows up to uh to dispatch <laughs> uh his former enemy who has taken over The young woman's body so it's
0: um yeah and and it's it's so 80s it's um i feel like this movie if if there was if you wanted to show somebody what the 80s were like on film and they they didn't live through the 80s this is the movie to show them show to them because it's got it's got aerobics got california and golfing and it's got aerobics class it's got a scene of the female lead scaling a power pole to a jammy pop song a la flash dance it's got lasers out of a stand-up video uh console it's even got a patrick nagel print like it's so 80s it's so incredibly 80s (laughs) the the
1: the possessed patrick nagel print is probably one of the highlights of the film, just cause it's a, as soon as you see it, you go, Oh, okay. Well, obviously I know what decade this is, um, <laughs> you know, and then you've got, uh, the, and then, you know, she's got this relationship with a cop, which is completely implausible. I mean, everything in the film is completely implausible. Uh, and yet it's, you know, it's 90 of the most entertaining minutes uh, you could ever have just because, you know, every scene kind of exists in its own universe and has something Crazy or unbelievable, or just slapdash happening that you you kind of can't believe either in, in terms of the fights or the special effects or the act. I mean, there's there's always. Uh, I mean, we don't usually delve into the world of so bad it's good here on Lens Me Your Ears, but it is fun to kind of to to kind of delve into some trash cinema, you know. But but sometimes that can be a disheartening endeavor because some films are just bad and you're just stuck there with the same. But but Ninja Three: The Domination, I feel, is is uh, is something special in terms of of its uh, just its willingness to just come up with a preposterous um, concept and stick with it all the way. Really,
0: that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that. Um, and uh, there were the, the 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 cultural sort of uh, signifiers in the film; those things I did enjoy. Um, now, we want to leap forward in time now to a, an entirely different kind of movie, one that has, when it was released in 2009, it didn't get a lot of love. I really enjoyed it, but it was not a hit, though in the decades since it's gotten a lot more uh, appreciation, and now I think people are coming around to how good it is, and that's Jennifer's Body. Oscar-winning screenwriter Diablo Cody was the, is the script... Uh, the writer here, and it is a hip and hilarious screenplay. And uh, she collaborated with director Karen Kusama on this film. Um, It You know, on the surface, it might seem like a fairly routine Heather's Ginger Snaps retread, but there is a lot more going on here. Megan Fox is the titular Jennifer. She's an alpha female in the high school in Devil's Kettle, New Jersey, whose nerdy BFF named Needy Uh, played by Amanda Seyfried. She's hiding her glamour a little bit, obviously, but she's great. Um, She sort of keeps Jennifer real, but Jennifer has a very bad night with an emo rock band from New York, and all of a sudden she has an interest in killing and eating the boys in her class. Um, And it turns out the rock band kind of raised a demon that possesses Jennifer. Uh, It goes wrong, their little – their plans, and and then she becomes – Kind of uh, a lot. She becomes a lot. Um, and so Needy needs to step up if if the slaughter is going to stop. She needs to sort of face up to her best friend and and also deal with the problems in their relationship. Because it's a little bit of an imbalanced power dynamic in their relationship. Uh, this is a, a, a fun movie. I know this is the first time you've seen it. Uh, so what did you make of it, Stephen?
1: Yeah, I regretted not seeing it when it came out. Because, you know, I remember at the time a lot of people saying, oh, this film is way better than it sounds, which isn't necessarily the highest praise, but, uh, you know, since it's, and it wasn't in theaters very long. So I, I, it's not like there were tons of opportunities to see it at the time, but, um, I'm glad I finally caught up with this film, you know, 10 years after the fact. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's smart. It's funny. Uh, you know, Amanda Seyfried and Megan Fox are terrific. They have a great dynamic as frenemies, as, uh, as they become over the course of the film, and there's there's lots of fun little digs at 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 sort of teen life, and you know the the mid-level uh, indie rock band Low Shoulder. <laughs> you know, there's, <laughs> there's some there's some fun jabs at at you know the music industry. Uh, you know, there's some great bits of dialogue as you'd expect from Diablo Cody's script. I like when they refer to uh, Jennifer as uh, the State Fair Butter Princess type. <laughs> um, yeah, you know that's. Yeah that's 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 a great line sometimes uh, you know i mean cody's gotten better as a screenwriter uh s- since this film i mean as evidenced by by um young adult and uh tully but uh so so some of the some of the aspects of the film are a bit on the nose i mean uh, naming uh seafried's character needy
0: is, <laughs> right that is pretty on the nose <laughs> you know
1: some things kind of sound like a have a bit of a clinker tone to them. But, but, uh, I find that, that, uh, that is, uh, the exception more than the rule over the course of the film, you know, and really the, the course of their relationship and, and Jennifer's increasing, um, demonic state and, uh, realization of her powers is, is, is really kind of what the core of the film is about. And, you know, I, I really like the film's kind of post Columbine kind of, uh, approach to to mass grief and trauma within the realm of a of a high school and how different teenagers deal with it it's you know it gives it a a little bit of gravitas I mean the film doesn't dwell on it too much but it's certainly a theme throughout the film of, of how how we kind of deal with these kind of tragedies and grief but in a sort of satiric horror film sense so it doesn't scream out allegory uh in that way, but it's certainly a theme in the film that I thought was uh handled in a really interesting way. And and Karen Kasama, you know, has since this film has gone on to 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 greater strengths with films like The Invitation and uh Destroyer with Nicole Kidman, which was, right, uh, sure. was a, a devastating uh you know, non horror but a horrific uh, kind of crime film. Yeah, now, from for sure. Years ago.
0: For sure, yeah, they're uh, they're definitely worth seeing those films. And but uh, I also I gotta say I really enjoyed in um, Jennifer's Body uh, the cameos pre stardom Chris Pratt, uh, J.K. Simmons as a teacher with a hook for a hand
1: yes. and, um, and an amazing haircut. He maybe yes he, he, he sometimes I think he looks like uh, Howard Hessman who played Johnny Fever on W.K.R.P. Sure. And, but here I think he's at his peak. Heftsman esque with that hair that he's got in
0: the <laughs> yeah uh Amy Sedaris is also in it briefly and uh and a late arriving Lance Henriksen shows up which uh which was a surprise um yeah there's a lot of pleasures to be had I think in Jennifer's body and uh um you know, it's it's the kind of movie where the humor never gets in the way of the gore and horror and those tropes never get in the way of character relationships and politics. It, it sort of works on all levels and and you even actually end up feeling quite a bit for the characters in a way that surprises. Um, you know, in a movie like this, I think sometimes you just, you're there for the sensation. You're not really there for anything that resembles reality. And, uh, and I feel like, like the the teen experience here uh, gives you enough to care about with these characters. Yeah,
1: I mean you even feel for Jennifer. She isn't a stock uh, horror monster figure. Uh, there's some genuine pathos in 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 her sort of uh, situation even even though it's she becomes something evil. It's it's not wholly evil. There's still her personality still in there somewhere and uh it it's it's maybe the evil has kind of highlighted certain tendencies that she has and and um you know it 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 doesn't make her entirely sympathetic necessarily but you don't just feel oh she's evil destroy her either like you, you feel that you kind of wish it had gone a different way or something like that but uh, but you know and that she's in, in some ways she's a a victim as much as uh, her, her victims are victims so uh it, it, there's definitely some subtlety going on here that you may not get from similar kinds of horror movies. Welcome back to the third and final segment of Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, we're looking at movies with switched personas, body swaps, brain trades, whatever you want to call them. Um, And uh, this is, uh, you know, we started with Possessor Uncut because it's a new film that explores uh, the concept of being able to inject your persona or a character's persona into another human being and the wacky misadventures in, in that case, horribly gory and violent misadventures that can ensue. But this is a, this is a concept that obviously, you know, as we mentioned earlier, goes back to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which, you know, is from the 1880s in literary form and not too, not too long after that in cinematic form. Uh, and, uh, in the seventies, uh, Disney's freaky Friday with, uh, barbara harris and a young jodie foster uh kind of kicked off a new cycle of these kinds of films but if you if you even just google body swap movies there's there's so many of them i mean uh, you know that that basically just take the freaky friday format and and you know just don't even change it that much Uh, there was one with um uh i think uh dudley moore and kirk cameron called like father like son uh uh, I, I guess there's the hot chick with uh, Rob Schneider uh, <laughs> where a, a cheerleader uh, finds herself in the body of a, of a middle-aged man and so on and so forth. It's, it goes on and on. And there's been four versions of freaky Friday. Uh, I think a couple of them for TV. Um, I think there might've even been a musical version. Uh, and there's a new version just called freaky. That's coming out on Friday, November 13th. How appropriate. Um, and it's just called freaky because it's not a mother daughter brain swap. It's actually a, um, high school student and a serial killer played by, um, Vince Vaughn, um, switch brains. So there you go. That's, that's the latest update of wow. this film. And it is a comedy. I saw a trailer for it. Actually, I, I didn't even know this film existed and I saw a trailer for it, uh, when I went to see memories of murder the other day and I just, I couldn't believe the timing of it. So we won't be able to talk about it here, but, um, might be one one to look for it actually could be good maybe i don't know but um you know there there seemed like there were a few laughs of a cheerleader becoming a a serial killer and a serial killer becoming a cheerleader so uh there you've been warned or um <laughs> prepped either way uh it's not like there's a lot of other new films to go see so uh that might be one to check out but but the original freaky friday um and uh and the uh the second uh Remake with Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis as the daughter and mother team are are what we watched and and uh, I did see Freaky Friday when it came out. I was uh, nine at the time and it was a part of a string of live-action Disney comedies These fairly cheapish looking uh, family friendly I guess comedies that uh, that Disney were just uh, putting out in droves They were certainly a lot cheaper to make than animated features and uh, and they made a string of them Uh, most of them are exactly what you'd think from the title the, the, the billion dollar duck the apple dumpling gang super dad uh you know the boat nicks. i the uh the computer that wore tennis shoes i i have a real fondness for these movies even though i know they're not good they're usually made by um you know TV directors or or directors at the tail end of their career, like Norman Torog, who had been working in the silent days, who made some of these, or Norman Norman Tokar, another director who I always get mixed up with Norman Torog. I don't know why. Um, but, <laughs> I couldn't uh, imagine. <laughs> yeah, you know these kind of lifers who are you know just you know they they get hired by Disney because they can work fast and cheap and and get these things done you know on on time and under budget or whatever. Uh, and Freaky Friday is a little bit better than some of these uh, probably due to the casting i mean jodie foster was such a charming actor uh, as a young woman uh, i'm a big fan of the one she's in candle where she plays like a streetwise orphan who somehow uh, realizes that she may have inherited uh, a british estate and that's kind of the setup and it's i find that one pretty charming um freaky friday here she's teamed up with barbara harris who, who's a terrific comic actor um Perhaps best known for appearing in, I think, Robert Altman's Nashville, but but is always a treat uh, in her '70s heyday, and and as as um you know playing these kind of really interesting women who have a comedic side, but they're not necessarily total ditzes either. And I and she was she came out of Second City. She was a skilled improviser and comedic actor on the live stage, and I think she brings a lot of that to uh to her roles the the script itself is is nothing to write home about i I feel like this one gets by on the charm of its actors especially when they're doing the brain swap and they have to you know jodie foster has to act like a a a housewife and barbara harris has to act like a teenager i I feel they do that really well and it's just fun watching a steady stream of character actors that you recognize or semi-recognize pop up in various roles throughout the course of the film uh and so for me, it's it's all nostalgia for this film, you know, recognizing that it is, you know, it is what it is in terms of a Disney 70s family comedy. But um, and seeing how e- even then what these kind of TV writers thought of a teenager's life feels pretty hackneyed and cliched. But I find that kind of amusing anyway. Um in in its own own kind of way but carson i i feel like you probably liked it even less than i
0: did (laughs) well i remember it from when i was a kid and i saw it then and i liked it when i was like eight but uh watching it again i couldn't quite find the nostalgia for it um you know i know it's set in 1976 but you'd think it was 1956 for all the ways that the disney machine thinks that women should behave and and you know um You mentioned uh, Barbara Harris' Mrs. Andrews. She doesn't even qualify for a first name in the credits, even though I think she has one in the film. I think it's Eileen or Ellen or something. Um, She is just basically a good soldier for her husband, who, you know, is the breadwinner. And then, you know, Annabelle, the daughter, is both an expert field hockey player and expert water skier like who thought that was the reasonable <laughs> and while Mrs. Andrews is an expert in Eisenhower administration policies like there's just a lot going on here there's there's a lot going on that doesn't make sense and then there's a potential for genuine cross-generational understanding and commentary but a Disney kids movie isn't really interested in that so so yeah i uh, the the thing i liked most about the film was probably the uh, the car chase in the last act that takes us down into the Los Angeles River, which, of course, naturally, I think we could do a whole Lens Me Your Ears episode about Los Angeles yes. River and all the movies that are shot down yeah. there, Greece, <laughs> including Grease, Terminator 2. There's a bunch of others. Um, and... Uh, but you know I you know what I really did like was Freaky Friday from 20, 2003. I was surprised how much I enjoyed the 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 I guess it's it had been a, as you say a TV movie on Dis, for Disney in 1995 with Shelley Long and Gabby Hoffman, but in 2003 we get Lindsay Lohan, very much a teenager. This time she's no sports star or secret genius. She's just your average rebellious teen who wants glory in a rock band and for her teachers to cut her some slack. She is a bit of a drama queen. She's prone to telling her mother over and over that her mother is ruining her life. But to her credit, her little brother is an absolute jerk. And, um, you know, at one point her mother and her soon-to-be stepfather remove her bedroom door saying privacy is a privilege. So you can kind of sympathize with her a little more. Uh, The mom, of course, is played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who is amazing. I mean, she's maybe the best reason to watch Freaky Friday from 2003 Um, she is trying she's a therapist she's trying to arrange her wedding to Mark Harmon all by herself which makes you wonder does she have any friends or did you think that maybe you know as a medical professional she might have the smarts to delegate some of these duties but maybe that's part of the problem that she's such a control freak Uh, when they switch Anna in Tess's body, Anna, the uh, the teenager in her mother's body, says, I'm like the Crypt Keeper, which I thought was a great line. <laughs> and then there's a great Stevie Nicks jokes where where Anna's like, who's he? <laughs> um, the only thing about the transformation that really leaves a bad taste in your mouth is that it's caused by a fortune cookie at a Chinese restaurant, which seems more than a little culturally inappropriate. Um, anyway, the – There's a lot of things to enjoy in the film, and um, I I think uh, yeah I was I was surprised how much I did enjoy it I guess yeah
1: same here it's it's certainly uh, certainly more cinematic than the '76 Freaky Friday which is all just you know just bland lighting and stock setups and. Was obviously made very quickly. Although I did, I did enjoy that for a family comedy. The characters sure smoke and drink an awful lot, uh, which is, <laughs> is you know, which is something that I, I just grew up seeing that in cartoons and TV shows, even ones meant for kids. You know, and now of course it's everything's completely whitewashed and has to go through five committees. Um, before I can get near a screen whereas there they just didn't care but but I you know I I I did feel like there was a more realistic dynamic between the mother and the daughter here there's more interaction between them in the remake which I I felt was a kind of lacking in the original because basically they just set up the concept and send each character on their own merry way Um, you know here they relate a bit more through the course of the film and uh, I like the twist in the you know the widow the widowed mom getting remarried um, and the daughter having issues with that and how that intertwines with things. Uh, it's funny. The, the bit about removing the bedroom door, uh, I, I, I'd, I'd seen that happen. I know somebody with kids and they do that, uh, to a daughter who acts out. And of course I'd never heard of that happening before. And now I know where they got the idea. Cause I imagine when this film came out, a, a lot of people were taking parenting tips from freaky Friday because I, wow, you know, I, I'd, I'd never heard of taking a kid's door off, off their bedroom. And, and then I saw it in action and, and, uh, yeah, I guess that would that would really uh, jangle your nerves if you're a kid and you just couldn't have that that one little layer of privacy of, of, yeah, of having seriously. your own room. So, um, you know, I don't know where that idea was floating around before this movie, but I'm, I, I bet it became real popular <laughs> afterwards. And, Yikes. And there's, there's lots of fun stuff like when they're when they're the first time they're they're getting dressed in each other's clothes and and uh, the. Jamie lee curtis the, the mom and the daughter's body says i'll drab up and the mom and the, the daughter in the mom's body says oh, i'll grunge down <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know again I, I there's you know very much of its time in terms of the music and the, the daughter being in the band and everything like that but uh, and then they introduced the whole thing about the the guy that the teenager has a crush on becomes infatuated with the mom, which adds a whole other layer of, of weirdness to the story that it does that it really does feels very odd, but at least gives it something that, you know, makes you kind of go, Whoa, <laughs> a little bit, but yeah. And you know, that's, that's some tricky waters that I, they managed to navigate more or less. And Lindsay Lohan is very good here. I mean, this is right. And then she did mean girls right after this, um, you know, and which makes it, you know, more of a double shame, you know, of, of where her career was headed afterwards, but uh, and her life really. But, um, you know, it's, she's, she's so good and natural here in front of the camera. You kind of wish that she was able to go on to bigger and better things.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. She's, she's really good. Um, yeah, it's a, I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I got to say. Um, now we also watched a very peculiar and it really deserves its own genre, uh, body-switching movie called *Being John Malkovich* from 1999. This, of course, is from Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman, who would, you know, reteam uh, for *The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind*. These are these are very talented filmmakers, and this story is is it just you know even when i talk about the plot i can't quite believe the film got made but that's what happened in 1999 a lot of interesting films got made john cusack is a puppeteer named craig schwartz he's a man who takes his mission as a puppeteer very seriously even though he gets beat up on the street for his wife lottie played by cameron diaz works at a pet supply store and their basement apartment is full of lizards and parrots and chimps um So Craig Schwartz decides to get a straight job at a company called Lester Corp. Its head offices are on the seventh and a half floor of an office tower. And there he becomes a filing clerk and develops a passion for Maxine, played by Catherine Keener. But Maxine couldn't care less about Craig. At some point during his workday, Craig stumbles upon a passageway in his office that gives him access to John Malkovich's brain. Uh, it's like he tags along inside John Malkovich's head for 15 minutes and he gets dumped onto the side of the New Jersey Turnpike after that period. And then, you know, he, but he enjoys the experience so much that he wants to keep doing it. And he and Maxine, well, Maxine Moore comes up with the idea of monetizing this experience and getting people to pay 200 bucks for the experience of wandering around inside the skin of a, of a celebrity. Um, And and it makes some people feel actualized somehow. Uh, It gets complicated when Maxine falls for Lottie, but only when she's inside John Malkovich. So this is a really, again, strange film. There's a lot about the emptiness of celebrity here. It amazes me that John Malkovich was up for this, but he really commits. Uh, It's also a very cynical film in many ways. I felt like none more Gen X. Watching it, um, there's a hopelessness there that I couldn't deny. But it's a uh, it's ultra 1990s, and th- it's still pretty great. You know, um, I'd forgotten about the chimp flashback in the film. There's <laughs> there's a lot of incredible ideas in this movie. Um, I thought it would be an outlier in our selection of possessor-related films, but in fact, it's actually might be the one that's the most like it in terms of mechanics um and in terms of tone it's very dark what did you make of of re-watching this film Steve? it
1: was i was looking forward to revisiting it and it didn't disappoint at all uh you know and, and in fact i was kind of spotting things that it has to say about kind of like you say the concept of celebrity and you know people trying to escape their you know what they perceive as their miserable lives um uh, you know rather than try to improve their own lives they try to find escape through you know this ultimate version of reality tv i guess for lack of a a a better idea and and uh and also i you know i I feel like it was maybe a comment on what was you know about to become social media uh, in terms of like looking out through a screen as a new persona that you can create yourself i feel like uh, this film was kind of prescient in a lot of ways about that sort of thing and um and, and and yeah it's just uh and I find it it works well as a satire, but also with a fair bit of pathos uh, for its characters on, on pretty much all levels. Uh, So it's, it's, it's not, it's not a heartless film, even though it is kind of bleak. And I, I think, uh, I think Spike Jones did an amazing job um, of, uh, of, of uh, pulling that off. Of course, along with the brilliant Charlie Kaufman screenplay, it's, you know, those two guys work so well in tandem together uh, and, and, you know, no, nowhere else better than, than in this particular film.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I thought it was, it was really fun to revisit though a little scary. Um, so we did watch a couple more body switch comedies. Um, I don't really, there's not a lot of time left in our, our episode of Lens Me Your Ears. I don't want to say necessarily too much about Switch from 1991. It's a very late Blake Edwards effort. It's mostly worth seeing for Ellen Barkin, who I don't think gets enough credit for, Physical comedy. She's so funny in this. Um, you know, amazing how she stumbles around on high heels for most of the film. Um, basically, uh, and I, yeah, the plot is she basically is is uh, has been reincarnated. She was a uh, you know a chauvinist pig who now needs to try to make friends with a woman in her day to day life. This is an R-rated, pretty homophobic and questionable so- sexual politics film, but uh, it it is it does have that one great role in it so i would recommend it if you you know if you do uh, have a soft spot for ellen barkin she's really good in it uh maybe or or as a blake edwards completist
1: that wraps up our body swapping edition of lends me your ears lends me your brain lends me your persona and, uh, hope you enjoyed this, uh, walk through films where, uh, minds and, and bodies intersect. It was, it was a lot of fun to do and a lot of fun to watch films, both good and bad. And, uh, hopefully we'll, uh, see you next time for our, whatever our next topic turns out to be. If you enjoyed the show, of course, you can find us on Twitter at Lens Me Rears or on our Facebook page. And, uh, you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E.
0: I'm on Twitter named after my blog. It's Flaw in the Iris.
1: And thanks again this week to the folks at CKDU who allow us the use of their production facilities and or every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And also to Village Soundcast Network who put all the finishing touches on each episode. And of course, Gypsophilia who provide the music. We don't give them enough credit as well. And uh, make sure you check out their music online or wherever fine records are sold. Thanks for your time. We'll see you next week.